This is The UU Perspective with your host, Sharon Merrill. This is episode number 12 of the UU Perspective Podcast, where you can hear weekly interviews from Unitarians and Unitarian Universalists that are changing the world through the stand they take on issues facing our world today and who facilitate making a difference in the communities around them. Whether you're already a member or a seeker exploring the faith, there is something here for everyone. From personal spiritual growth to inspiration that impacts the community, you'll be opened up to awesome possibilities. So sit back and relax and enjoy the conversations you're about to hear. So my guests today are two commission lay leaders, and we're going to talk about the commission lay leader program so that you can get more info on it. And Deb Cheney from Canton, Ohio, and Amy Collins from Cleveland, Ohio, are going to give their perspectives on how they became a CLL and uh, what kind of impact it's making upon the churches that they go to. And I chose both of these ladies because we're, I'm trying to give you a perspective from the aspect of the UU Society has a full-time minister and how a CLL impacts having a full-time minister as compared to uh, Deb's church who has contracted ministers. So it's a very different perspective that you're going to hear about. Just a quick tidbits on uh, both of them. Deb, she is from the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Greater Canton and is a licensed social worker. And one thing that I found out that Deb and I have in common is we both graduated from North Canton Hoover High School. And although we never crossed paths and did not know each other uh, when we went to school there, uh, I just found that interesting because I've only known her for probably a little over a year, actually. And Amy, who is actually my wife, she is also been at the UU Society of Cleveland for, oh boy, it's been over 20 years now, I believe. And she is actually from, originally from Kalamazoo, Michigan, and is a lifelong UU. And uh, she has been a CLL for over 10 years now. So let's go ahead and you're first going to hear from Deb, get a little background on her and then Amy, and then uh, get into explaining a little bit about the uh, Commission Lay Leader Program, uh, what it's about, and how you can get involved in it if it's something of interest to you. And then, of course, end with our usual questions, our big question at the end, and have them both answer that. So uh, this one is a little bit longer than usual, as I have combined uh, actually two live interviews with each of them that I did separately. So uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy what you hear from both of them. Here we go. Let's have Deb, let's have you take a minute and would you tell everyone about yourself and how you're involved in the UU community? I am a member of the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Greater Canton, uh, where I've been a member and actively involved for the past 15 years. And uh, over the course of that time, I um, ultimately ended up as a commission lay leader, which I took on, I think, four years ago was my initial commissioning. From the time that I discovered Unitarian Universalism, it very much struck a chord with me, and I was anxious to spread the word about it and share this with other people who I thought would respect and honor and find compatibility with the principles and values of Unitarian Universalism. So I was initially very active when I first started, um, ultimately preached along the way was asked to represent our congregation at a, an interfaith, as an interfaith project. Um, the churches rotate and are asked to speak every spring, um, to take turns speaking every spring at a, 
a law week event, the naturalization ceremony that they have. They do naturalization ceremonies several times throughout the year, but in the spring during the course of law week, it's a much grander affair um, done at a, a local historic theater. So it's a much bigger, um, just a bigger event all the way around. And they have uh, churches, local churches, provide a invocation and a benediction. And so we were, it was our turn to do the benediction, and, and I was given that honor by my congregation to represent us in that way. And that really shifted my connection with with the faith and with my congregation. That really shifted it, kicked it to a different level as I prepared to speak um, at that event, and, uh, and it continued to after that. Preparing for that event caused me to really, I didn't, I ended up writing the piece that I used for the benediction. So there was um, kind of a definition of my own faith concept within the framework of Unitarian Universalism um, that I put, that I came up with. And so there was, a, it redefined, it allowed me to redefine my faith and share the Unitarian Universalist principles in the prayer that I wrote for that event and caused me to to transition to a more active uh, role than I had before. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, I wasn't up to that point speaking publicly. And once I did in that way about it, it was a, it was a shift for me. It shifted my whole involvement up to a different level. And ultimately I believe was responsible for my initiating the process to become a commission lay leader. Uh, okay. It was out of that, out of that real shift in the commitment and uh, yeah. It, yeah. Now, do you have do you have a copy of that prayer? I don't have it with me, but well, no. I do have it. Yeah. Yes, yes, good. Yeah, I'll send it along so to we'll you. Put it yeah. in the show notes. That'd be cool. Yeah. So that pretty much then kind of set that foundation for you to carry on and do what you're doing now. Then, mm-hmm. when so when was it that you um, discovered UUism? Um, it was in 1999, in the end of August, last week in August. Um, and the reason I know that date is because, or that proximate date, is because our congregation at that time was in the habit of um, having a booth at the star- at the county fair, ah. and that was where I discreetly and quietly uh, perused and uh, gathered literature um, without certainly engaging with the person who was sitting there. God forbid, <laughs> you know that they might you know, say something with which I did not agree. Um, <laughs> but I went home and I and I wept when I read the principles of Unitarian ah. Universalism. <laughs> so it took me then a couple months before I showed up. And um, mm-hmm. they happened to be doing a very um, esoteric um, speaker that morning in which I was, and they were all worried that I wasn't going to come back because it was a little bit out there. And I mm-hmm. assured them that I would be back. <laughs> because oh. I knew I had found my home. So, yeah. what was it that resonated with you? I mean, is it all inside the principles, or what really? The, you know, it, it was the principles that initiated, that initially resonated with me so much because I really, um, our interconnection with each other, our acceptance, how affirming, um, the respect and affirmation and interconnection with each other and with all of life is what really. Um, the whole, all of them together, you mm-hmm. know, the, the, the process by which, with which we choose to, to be in community with each other, all mm-hmm. those things really struck a chord with me. I am a, have been a licensed social worker by profession. And so the, the respect and the empowerment and the affirmation fit in with the values that I had in that way. Thanks, Deb. So let's take a moment and let's get to know Amy a little bit. Amy, first of all, I want you to just give us a little background about who you are and what you are about in the uh, UU community and where you've come from. Because you've been a lifelong UU, right? I have. I was born and raised a UU, and my parents were both Unitarian, or I guess they were Unitarian as opposed to Universalist, because once it used to be two separate denominations. Um, but yeah, I... Um, have been a UU all my life and got involved in the UU Society when I first moved here back in 90. 
um, and have had different levels of and areas of involvement and leadership within the congregation, ranging from membership to singing in the choir to being on the board of trustees and um, eventually got involved on the worship committee and ultimately decided to take on a more formal leadership role and um, pursue, you know, kind of developing in that area. And with the encouragement of the minister at that time, Reverend Peggy Clayson, decided to pursue the Commission Lay Leader Program. And was the Commission Lay Leader Program, was that pretty new at that time when Peggy asked you to do it? Not at all. Actually, it started back in 1976. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it's been around for a long time. Um, Reverend Gordon McKeeman at that time, um, it was kind of his brainchild that he presented to the Ohio Meadville District Board. Um, He recognized that there was a need for leadership development. There were a lot of people that were willing to kind of step up into long-term leadership positions and take on a big role within the different congregations and didn't have necessarily the knowledge, the skills, the expertise that they might um, need to be effective. And so he really felt like strong leaders made strong congregations and kind of developed the whole idea around the curriculum to develop commission lay leaders. Is it only in our district? It uh, was for a very long time only in our district. And then um, these, uh, I can't remember the name, the St. St. Lawrence district where we actually do a joint district meeting with them now for the last few years we have. Um, they were kind of in an inquiry about it and decided within the last couple of years to begin the program there there as well. So um, actually the chair of our CLL committee here also has a, um, a staff position that bridges the St. Lawrence district and the OMD district and um, has been instrumental in helping to develop some resources that can be used um, for them as well uh, as they have initiated their program. I don't know where it stands as far as how many people have actually Mm. started participating in it and, and actually Mm -hmm. gotten off the ground, but it's been at least approved and, and uh, established. So the, um, UUA president Peter Morales uh, had expressed, and I actually didn't have haven't had a firsthand uh, account of it, but um, had spoken in support of having a, a more broad program across the U.S. And uh, I don't I don't know what kind of traction it's gotten, you know, nationally, but definitely the ideas out there because the um, benefits are certainly clear. What are the benefits? Um, well, having people who have had some strong development, I mean, as, leader, as leaders, I mean, there's different leadership institutes and things that help to develop leaders from kind of a more board standpoint and things like that. But the thing about the Commission Lay Leader Program is it's very multifaceted. It covers everything from worship, um, UU history, world religions, rites of passage, um, lifespan faith development, uh, and it's it's a mentored um, program that's overseen by a district committee, and it really gives people an opportunity to kind of unpack their understanding of what it is to be Unitarian Universalism, to have a, a mentored a mentor is is an is actually a professional minister who agrees to work with that person. They have a there's an exhaustive reading list um, that covers all the different areas of development. That there's an expectation that the you know that the the candidate will once they're accepted as a candidate will review, will read the books and and discuss those with their mentor. And when they and their mentor believe they're ready, they'll go be back before the committee and do kind of a presentation. Sometimes that's in the form of a worship um, service, like a short worship service and, uh, and kind of an interview process in that. And, you know, what comes out of that is a, is a, a lifting up of that individual as a leader within their congregation. And they're able to support both the needs of the congregation from a, um, 
as another pastoral presence, but they're not a professional minister. So they're kind of still, I like to say, of the people <laughs> as opposed to necessarily just for the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can really support whatever um, strengths that the minister, the professional minister has at least in, in our case, and you were making a contrast with like Dub's church as not having a full-time minister, she has a different kind of presence in her congregation because there may be some people who come to her church and think she's the minister. <laughs> mm-hmm. Whereas in our church, we have a full-time minister. And, and so um, my role is more complimentary and supportive. Um, and yet we have a collegial relationship uh, and I'm kind of considered a volunteer staff person at the church. So, um, so the benefits are the more strong and developed leaders that you have within a congregation, the, the healthier and stronger the congregation can be, and the more support that members of the congregation have um, in, in terms of supporting the programming, supporting worship. I mean, I, I coordinate the team of worship associates, and, and you know, that can be a, a, a simple matter of managing a worship schedule for guest speakers and things like that, coordinating our team to develop worship services and leading retreats and training and things like that. And that can free up the energy and time of the minister or be something that we do collaboratively so that it just brings a whole nother, you know, another layer, another perspective um, that overall then the whole congregation can benefit from that. Mm -hmm. Right. So, Inside of this, what? How long would you say the process is for a CLL um, or a candidate? Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends on where you consider the start of the process to be. But um, because the first thing that has to happen is a person has to be accepted as a candidate, and that process usually occurs out when a, a person is already kind of seen as a leader within their congregation. They have to have support of the minister, support of the board of trustees. And, uh, and that usually typically means that they're already seen, you know, as from the members of the congregation as well as a leader. And then they have, they filled an application. They have to have letters of recommendation, including one from the minister and board president. Um, that application goes before the committee. The committee technically meets, um, twice a year. Um, although we do review candidates in between sometimes now that we have the wonders of modern technology to do so. <laughs> And you speak of we because you are on the committee. I am now. on the committee, yes. I've <laughs> <laughs> been for the last few years. But basically, once a person is accepted as a candidate and how long it takes them to get their poop in a group, so to speak, <laughs> is up to the individual because that could be months or it could be, you know, a couple weeks or whatever. The mentored process, when I joined, when I became a candidate, I remember being told it could be anywhere from a year to two years. If you look at the website now and if you go to Ohio Meadville, Dot org. If you look at the description, it'll say that the process takes from two to four years, which is probably a little more realistic because the reality is that people are doing it as volunteers and mm-hmm. many people have other lives <laughs> like work and <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> things like having to make a living or raise a family or yeah. take care of parents or God knows what. So so sometimes the, the work around becoming a commission lay leader can ebb and flow a little bit as people's life demands, you know, can kind of um, converge upon them, et cetera. So for me, I think it took, I don't know, maybe 18 months or so. I was kind of interested in finishing before my minister at the time, Peggy Clayson, was retiring. And I really wanted to be able to be finished and be commissioned before she retired because, you know, she had really really wanted to encourage me and I wanted her to be able to participate in my commissioning ceremony and things. So I was kind of pushing myself to get done (laughs) quicker than I might have otherwise. So, Deb, inside of your congregation, the CLL plays an important part because you don't have a settled minister, right? We do not have a settled minister. Um, We... At this time, lay led. We have had several ministers um, over the years, uh, several who have been interns who are finishing requirements for their 
ministerial studies, mm-hmm. and we had a, a minister we called who worked with us part-time for several years mm-hmm. um, and really laid some wonderful groundwork for us organizationally that still carries on to this state. Otherwise, we are lay-led. We have speakers from within and from outside our congregation from the district. We have district UUs. We have people local to us. We have interfaith folks. Um, we have all different kinds of folks at our, we've had f- local farm to table folks, specialists come in and speak with us. So it's really a, just different, just all different things. Mm-hmm. And then what is your role as the CLL then? Um, I, I believe the CLL roles vary within congregations. Some are um, I believe function as ministerial liaisons and really kind of a right hand to the minister. And um, I know in one congregation where they kind of serve as backup for the minister. Mm-hmm. Um, in our case, I certainly wouldn't say I was acting in place of a minister, but I am able to perform some functions and duties that a minister would. Um, I preach. I take preach take sermons to other congregations. I um, I'm involved in pastoral care, which certainly also um, fits with my social work background. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really try, I'm involved in the Committee on Shared Ministry. I really try and oversee our spiritual activity um, and make sure that it's in alignment and in agreement, coherence with um, with our values and, mm-hmm. and our principles. Okay. What was the process for you to become a, a CLL? Um, our district, Ohio Meadville District, um, has it spelled out, the process uh, that you go by. You fill out a, a packet of information, um, application, um, submit it to the district's committee, the Commission Lay Leadership Committee. They review your application, um, and if they approve you to um, begin the process, they interview you. Um, they... Um, had you submit some things besides your written packet. They had you present a short worship service that you presented to the committee. Um, then they um, spoke and made a determination if they agreed that you were eligible to begin the process. Um, and then it, from there it takes, I think it largely depends on the individual. I think average it takes probably two years to complete the process. There are there's a list of readings that are required and some are recommended. You are mentored by a, a minister who mentors you who, and you um, answer to the, to the committee. And ultimately, once you've completed uh, and you have a project, projects that you're working on within your congregation as well as part of your activities but towards that. Mm-hmm. And in completion of all those things, when it's um, mutually agreed upon that you've completed um, those assignments and responsibilities, um, then you submit um, back to that committee mm-hmm. um, with endorsement by your governing board from your own home congregation mm-hmm. um, to them. And then um, then the process is that there's a commissioning then that occurs and a celebration. Okay. How long did it take you to do that? It took me about two years, Okay, I think. And did you ha- have like a um, kind of a, any specialty area? Is that part of it at all? or um, We're encouraged to pursue, based on our interests and experience and aptitude, um, our own area, our, find our own niche. Mm-hmm. Um, worship is something that I have felt strongly about and um, was committed to. And so I've been very actively involved in worship within my home congregation. Okay. And what was, um, now you said you had a mentor? Mm-hmm. Who who was your mentor? Reverend Elaine Strawn. Oh, okay. From Worcester, the Worcester congregation. All right. Yeah. And so um, how did she help guide you through the process? Um, she, uh, we would discuss readings. She would um, ally, advocate, advocate for me. Um, she would support me, guide me. Uh, we would have conversations, kind mm-hmm. of discussions about occurrences and happenings and other things she was extremely supportive in guiding me and supporting me through the process mm-hmm. and what did you uh, think was most difficult about it I think trying to get 
the readings are uh, very important to the process, but I think I think there's still a little bit of a challenge of the process. So I'm not. I don't think there's a an alternative to that. I think it is what it is. I think they're a necessary component, but I think they require some time. Some of the readings do because some there are readings in all different categories, and some are based on history and polity and um, all sorts of other areas that require attention and concentration. So a lot of the time and the concentration. It is. is it huge. is. It's a challenge because we're already actively involved in our home our, our home congregation. So. Uh, what did you find most interesting about it? For me personally, I think the most interesting part about it was looking at myself and my potential role with my congregation, my contribution in a different way. The whole concept of being a leader, um, I hadn't seen myself that way because I had seen leadership being part of political governance and I hadn't seen that leadership could occur in another way, in a spiritual way, in a in a holistic way, mm-hmm. in a supportive way, in a worship way. I hadn't seen. Um, I, I was had hung up on that on that leader concept. That notion wasn't something that I felt engaged to. Um, so going through the process, I came to perceive the role and the strength of leadership in a far more open and organic kind of way. So were you able to like redefine it then? For myself. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Okay. Definitely. What do you think's the uh, biggest impact you've had upon uh, your congregation since you've been a CLL? I think ministry is something that we all do. And I think that leadership is something that we can also be seen as doing as well. I think the, the impact of our interactions with each other is always far greater than than might be foreseen on the surface. Mm-hmm. I think that the, you know, how many times did a message that I'm humbly putting out there that's based on, you know, things, tidbits of wisdom that I've, you know, gleaned from whatever life experiences I've had, and you humbly offer those and think, oh my God, I hope this has some relevance to someone else. And, you know, and someone comes to you after the service and says, you know, oh my God, I needed to hear that message today. You have no idea how that fits with where I am and what words I needed. And it means a lot to me that you put yourself out there that way. Wow. And you you can't foresee that. You can't anticipate that or know that. No, right. Yeah. And it's very... It's wonderful. It's humbling, but it's and it's wonderful all at once, you know. And it, um, it's nice to know that the paths that we walk, that there's so much commonality between all of them. You know, sometimes we hide under the darkest parts, and you know, those are the times when we need to shine our lights and share those and open those, expose those the most, because it's exposing and sharing that brings that value to others as well. Yeah, because you don't know who you're going to have impact. You don't. So it, what about, um, as you look into the future with the congregation, what do you foresee happening and what, what aspect can you affect in the future? If you were look, to look five years into the future, where would you imagine it to be? I would hope that my growth can keep up with the growth of the congregation. Amy, what initially led you to <clears throat> want to become a commission lay leader? Um, I was definitely f- focused on worship, and you'll find that people who do the program pick an area of focus. So for me, it was worship. For some people, it might be pastoral care, or it might be there's someone at uh, West Shore UU. Uh, one of my uh, colleagues is a does addictions ministry, etc. So for me. I felt like I, I, I don't know if, if calling it a call to, you know, it's not necessarily the same call that a minister feels in terms of a call to professional ministry, but it was definitely a call to be involved on a deeper, more meaningful level in the area of worship and to help elevate worship to the next level within the congregation. Like when I first started at the congregation and became aware of kind of the behind the scenes workings of what was going on. There was a pretty casual 
uh, worship committee. And there, there were some great services that came out of it, but it was very inconsistent. So, and at that time, when I first became involved with the congregation, Peggy was a part-time minister. So we didn't have a full-time minister at that time. And she only preached once a month. So we mm-hmm. did a lot of lay-led services mm-hmm. and had a lot of guests, etc. And so um, there were some other folks besides myself that really became very committed to stepping it up a bit, you know, and having some kind of standard liturgy, not that we were locked into doing certain elements all the time, but but that there was some consistency in terms of the format of the service, you know, with some freedom to play within that. And I saw that difference. I saw that start to build, I don't know, a, it's kind of like, it's kind of the big show, you know, as far as what mm-hmm. happens at church. I mean, people get involved in a lot of different areas and maybe they're, they're really there for coffee hour or maybe they're there because they like to come to movie night. But the reality is that one of the things that distinguishes a church from other types of gatherings is uh, some kind of a worship service on a Sunday morning. And so to me, that was really at the heart of the matter. And I was drawn to being a bigger part of that and raising that element up to the next level to serve the emotional, spiritual uh, needs of the co- of the congregation and being able to be kind of cause for that and part of that. What have you seen since the time of becoming a CLL until now, which has been how many years now? Well, I'm on my third three-year term as a commission lay leader at least. And then I was a candidate before that. And I don't know if I'm on my third or fourth term, to be honest with you. (laughs) So around 10 years? Yeah, probably about 10 years. So in that time, what have you seen change and what impacts have you made inside of worship? What changes have happened? Well, I mean, I've seen changes that I've been a part of, and as have many of the uh, very excellent professional ministers that I've had the opportunity to work with. So it's never, a, um, you know, not to be cliche, but it's not just my work, but the work of other people as well. Well, and um, plus you've had to work with interim ministers because yeah. there's been a lot of changes mm-hmm. within all that, those years. There's been about yes. four different people that have been mm-hmm. in. We had Peggy who retired, mm-hmm. and then we had uh, Terry Keim and uh, Kathleen Rowlands, both who were part-time interim ministers. We made the decision to go to full-time ministry. We had Colin Boston for about five years. And after he left, we had um, two full-time interim. Um, we had a full-time interim for two years, uh, Reverend Doug, Walk- Doug Watkins. And then now we have another full-time settled minister, Reverend Joe Cherry. So, uh, that's been quite an evolution. And I think the shift to full-time ministry, as well as the establishment of a worship associate program, distinct from a worship committee, which is kind of like something anybody could just sign up for, and lacked a little bit of accountability and support and development. So if there's anything that I'm, you know, quite, I would say I'm very proud of has been a role in helping establish that worship associate program and get that growing. Um, and the, the difference is that if a person wants to be involved in worship now on a regular basis, they apply to be a worship associate. We have kind of criteria that we establish. Um, and then, so they fill that out. And then uh, once they're selected, they're basically agreeing to a two year term, which they can renew at least they can renew once and then they need to take a year off to kind of do something else or kind of to avoid burnout a little bit. And typically about half the team will roll off each year and another half will be on another year while we have new folks coming in. And, uh, and then we provide some training and support and, uh, and we get to do a little bit of introspection and a, in a retreat each year, Sometimes with some specific programming, sometimes we kind of do our own programming, or maybe we have a guest facilitator. And then because those folks are involved over time and they have, you know, we have roles and assignments, um, and we discuss the liturgy and we work collaboratively with the minister, we do about four completely team-led services each year. 
um, that we work together on, and people kind of have opportunities to do kind of mini homilies and and do some other writing around the different liturgical elements. So they get more deeply involved and take on some ownership, and it's just really made it a more thoughtful and thought-provoking thing instead of just kind of willy-nilly. It kind of just, I would call it adding a little bit of quality control as well as support and development and mentoring. Yeah, because weekly they also support the minister who is, or the guest minister, whoever is there Mm -hmm. also. That's right. So each Sunday we would have a couple of people assigned so that we have uh, a setup person who is doing kind of all the uh, all the elements associated with creating the space. So, do we have the candles? They're checking, you know, they're lighting they're lighting the candles. They're making sure the batteries are are fresh on the microphone and and putting out hymnals and um, turning up, putting the do not disturb on the phone and <laughs> and all those kind of uh, things. And then the worship associate that's designated for that week. We'll do the welcome and introduction and announce the offertory and and uh, hymns and things like that and maybe do one of the readings, et cetera. So that the, that's the, your dwa. That's there. your dwa, dwa. yes. Yeah, designated worship associate, dwa. <laughs> so we, <laughs> I know, I gotta love it. It's like alphabet suit, like any and anything else, right? right? Um, <laughs> but the idea that, you know, the, that the speaker really has a, uh, a partner in crime to work with and and they might be running a powerpoint presentation now we have now that we have av there's adds a whole nother level of complication and that type of thing and um and if it's a guest speaker then they're they have additional responsibilities in advance of that to coordinate with them making sure that they have the order of service into the administrator etc etc so it helps to i know that when i've spoken at other churches it gives me a level of ease when i have a worship associate who knows what the heck's going on and gets in touch with me ahead of time and gives me the standard order of service so i can plug my pieces in and mm-hmm. and kind of is the interface with that church so they provide that um we provide that for other guest speakers that come into our congregation as well yeah so that really is a it's it's a weekly commitment on mm-hmm. the part of the worship associates who who are in this program then really sure it's I not mean, just four times a year no absolutely that's that's the the lay led services that we do but like we have a meeting tomorrow where um we'll be we're doing a service later in march and this will be actually the third planning meeting for just the service now depending on how many people are on the committee this year we have a smaller group but usually if we have about six people you might be what i call on you know like twice a month because you might be doing set up one month one day and then um doing dwa <laughs> being the designated <laughs> worship associate on another week um heavy months like christmas where we have some additional services other than the standard sunday services it might be three times a month so it really just depends um and of course we try to work with people who have you know they're entitled to things like vacations and such. So sometimes <laughs> people have heavier, right. lighter months, so it's not always exact. So tell me how it was you when you're in the program, you the CLL program, you get a mentor, mm-hmm. and it's a experienced minister. Yep. And who was your mentor? Uh, Reverend Christine Nielsen, who at the time was serving uh, Southwest UU congregation, and we would meet about once a month. You know, talk about whatever I was focused on. Maybe I was reading a book on world religions, or maybe I was, you know, we talked about UU polity, or, you know, talk about some, like, for me, I was going through, we met even after I became commissioned, (laughs) because of all the changes that were going on that we referenced earlier in the conversation with our different interim ministers and things like that. And especially this, the shift from part-time to full-time ministry, et cetera, and how that changed the flavor of our worship team. And uh, she was a great sounding board, somebody outside the congregation who could be a sounding board on a com- in a confidential way to me, but also still be a professional and have kind of a collegial relationship. So that was really helpful. But, yeah, so she she helped me kind of guide me through that, was a sounding board for me. Um, helped me identify what areas that I was really pretty uh, okay in versus areas that I might need more development. And then helped me determine, you know, when I was really kind of ready 
to go ahead and, and complete the process and be go, go before the committee and get commissioned. What was the process like to go in front of the committee? What did you have to do in those final, the final moments? The final moments. Well, um, I had to put together kind of a portfolio of what I had completed. So, like, you have the reading list, and now it's very, very organized, and it's this, you know, pick books from this category, this category, this category, this, and then you have to sign this thing saying, I've read these books. And, and, um, and, and then the people on the committee can ask you any questions that they want, and the committee is comprised of professional ministers, commission lay leaders, as well as lay people. How many? Well, I'm not exactly sure how many there are right at this moment because we've been having a lot of virtual meetings. Not everyone can get to the same one, so I'm gonna um, def- I'm gonna defer on that particular question. At that time, I want to say there was maybe about six people in the room, and we met at a church, and uh, they, you know, it was part of their meeting day. They would meet at you know most of the day because um, they were just meeting a couple times a year and had a lot to go over. So then I had to do a, because my focus was worship, I had to do a mini worship service. So I did like a 10-minute worship service. So it included, you know, like a chalice lighting or opening words kind of thing. And then I did a little mini sermon. And then I did a, you know, had us all sing, sing something and <laughs> that we all knew <laughs> and then, um, that we could do acapella <laughs> and... Uh, sitting around a table and then uh and then you know closing words or whatever and then i had to leave the room and then they all got to talk about me and decide whether they wanted to officially accept me as oh a commissionally leader and uh i they congratulated me when i came back that i they <laughs> that they were accepting me as a lay leader and then then their decision goes to the ohio meadville district board and that's actually the board of trustees that then approves that and sends that officially to you, like a letter to you basically saying that you're um, the commission lay leader. And they uh, request that the congregation do an actual commissioning ceremony. Mm -hmm. So we did that. And um, that was very cool. And then, um, and then you actually submit that paperwork to like, I'll, I'm able to solemnize marriages Mm -hmm. um, legally and, uh, the letter, there's a letter that basically you send saying that it would be an expectation that you might be able to, that you might be called upon to play that role within your congregation. I mean, and it's one of the reasons, uh, you know, why it was so helpful to have commission lay leaders uh, early on, especially in congregations and fellowships that were much smaller and maybe didn't have a full-time minister where they didn't have somebody who could do marriages and right and memorial services and things like that. Well, if you had somebody who was trained, both trained and legally qualified to be able to perform that function, that was very helpful. So, I mean, over the years, we've had different ministers in and out. And, you know, we had some ministers that like, well, I don't really want to. We get calls at the church saying, you know, hey, I need somebody to do a wedding. Um, maybe somebody who's not affiliated with a church or maybe it's a inter-religious marriage or something. And they're looking for you user often called upon in those situations. And there have been some ministers say, hey, are you interested in taking any of those calls when they come in? I'm just too busy or whatever. But in any case, uh, that paperwork is something else that you complete. And uh, and then, you you know, there's a, a code of ethics that you sign. You know, you're expected to maintain a level of professionalism. And after that, you know, it's a, every three years, it's a renewal process where you have to just fill out some paperwork and kind of establish a, a new agreement and goals. You have to come up with a an actual agreement with your congregation as to what your role will be because there's always a danger. It's to protect both sides, right? Because mm-hmm. there's always a danger of um, a congregation taking a little too much advantage of a volunteer staff person. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's a lesson in boundaries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I've always had a very good support and relationship with my congregation. They're... they're uh, they respect my boundaries, mm-hmm. so it's all good. But um, but it's a really nice situation for congregations who have only, like, a part-time minister or less. Mm-hmm. It's a really good setup, actually. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, though, that, um, that I always like to point out is because some people think of 
and and this has sometimes been an issue for ministers who have some have felt a little um, I don't know uh, I don't know the, I don't want to I want I'm not going to think of the right word but have been uncomfortable let's say with the idea of commission lay leaders as if they were in competition with ministers and you know someone once said to me can you have more than one commission lay leader and you know my answer is yes and 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 a lot of ministers who work with commission lay leaders on a regular basis and see the benefit also say yes and and i think you know you could have three or four or five commission lay leaders and it would not be a bad thing because as i say it's really just about having strong leaders within a congregation and they could have different focuses i would love it if we had within our congregation if we had a a CLL who is focused on pastoral care, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, we have a, a person in the congregation now who, who would make a great commission lay leader focused on worship like myself. Cause I don't think that you can have too much of that. So right. I do want to clarify that, that it is not just for congregations that are part time, that it's actually a really, you can't really have too many commission lay leaders in a sense. Cause okay. all that means is you have a, a, a developed and, um, you know, somebody with some comprehensive training in leadership. And that can only serve a congregation and a minister. Right. So it really complements the minister and it adds to just even the attraction of the church itself when you have different, if you had a lot of commission leaders, many of them, and focused in different areas yeah. it's like yeah you could cover so many areas yep. and there used to be a down in akron years ago i don't she didn't continue um on as a commission lay leader but she was doing um parish she was a parish nurse oh you know and um there's one in columbus who was leading a whole team of pastoral care associates for a very very large congregation that probably had 60 or more people who were like homebound or not able to get to church and he coordinated a whole team of people that would support them. Wow. So there's a, a huge uh, need for leadership and Unitarian Universalism as a denomination has a really long, strong history around lay laity, lay leadership and lay, um, you know, involvement in the overall life of the church. I mean, many denominations do, but particularly, um, Unitarian Universalism. Mm -hmm. What would you find was the biggest challenge as you went through the process um, of becoming a commission lay leader? Uh, For me, it was probably the reading list. (laughs) And (laughs) others have found it daunting. I know when um, there have been some ministers that when they joined the CLL committee said, oh, my God, this list looks like the one I had to that I had to complete to finish becoming a minister like when I was in seminary. So, I mean, we've uh, kind of done a better job of, okay, pick one from this category as opposed to you have to read, you know, five books from this. And (laughs) it's kind of funny too, even just the interpretation of uh, how to approach the reading list when um, I remember feeling a little guilty when one of my uh, colleagues said that, they had read every single book on the list because they thought that they had to. And I hadn't, I had picked from the various categories as my mentor had instructed me to do. And, um, and I think they were a little put out that, <laughs> that I hadn't <laughs> had to read the entire list. So, um, but even the ones that I did read, I mean, some of them are, they, they've also done a very good job of culling that list and, and making it a better list of books and more up to date and what's the more recent things that have been written, et cetera, as well as some of the good old classics and that. But it was, you know, for me, reading has tended to be more of an escapist kind of thing. So to have to kind of get into this, these, this meaty stuff about UU history and polity and world religions, et cetera, was a little bit challenging, um, to do while I'm working and, and kind of living my life. So that was probably one of the bigger challenges for me, but I, I did re- end up reading some great stuff and being glad for it. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you are on the committee now. What's your function on the committee? I'm just, um, 
committee at large. I mean, we there's no like office. I mean, I I um, am involved in helping review candidates. We actually have had a nice little influx of candidates recently, and so. You know, that means reading through their applications and their letters of recommendation and determining, um, helping determine questions to ask them in our interview because we, you know, the interview as they come in. So, you know, that sometimes it's been to, like when, when the St. Lawrence District was looking at starting the CLL program at the district meeting, we had a Renee Rahutsky, the chair, um, organized a panel discussion and some of the other members of the committee and myself sat on that panel to answer questions and speak to you know the interest of um you know why why they might want to do it what it's like what it's about etc so sometimes it's just been an advocacy yeah. thing okay and and to review those applications like i said so it's a pretty collaborative group you know okay. so i don't have a a role distinct really from anybody else on the team okay What's the biggest thing you've got gotten out of being a CLL? Well, it's interesting to me that I, um, being having been raised as a Unitarian Universalist, I felt pretty um, illiterate around Christianity. <laughs> oh, okay. So, so to and because I don't continue to study and read around Christianity, I can't, it doesn't just fall off my tongue now, but having kind of learned a little bit more from in my looking at world religions and including Christianity, um, I, I think I've made a lot of peace around, you know, we talk about our living tradition, which in the front of all hymnal talks about, all the great world religions and, and traditions that we draw from as part of our ongoing living tradition, as opposed to one sacred text, etc. And I think I've always, for a long time, having been raised by a devout, devout atheist, <laughs> I um, kind of rejected a lot of uh, Christian and um, Judaism kind of ideology and really kind of gaining an appreciation for for that part of our the roots of our denomination and understanding how we fit into the overall context of those religions um, and world religions. It's just helped me to be a little bit more comfortable with the language of reverence. It's helped me deepen my relationship with as a Unitarian Universalist as opposed to just, I'm a UU because my parents were. Hmm. <laughs> you know, kind of owning my religiousness. If you will, oh, yeah, yeah, has been has been big, and therefore also helping to support other people on that journey. Okay, that's great, Deb. Who has inspired you through the years mm -hmm. as a UU? It would be so hard for me to identify one person. There have been our ancestors within this faith. The folks on whom this faith is based are such strong, liberal, free-thinking, activist, searching, um, strong people who weren't daunted by mm -hmm. obstacles and hindrances and roadblocks, who really persevered. And, you know, I think those people are incredibly inspiring. Mm -hmm. sometimes, sometimes I think we all want to lean toward taking the path of least, least resistance. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that they remind us that we wouldn't have this faith to share and celebrate if if someone had done that. Mm -hmm. Amy, give me a quote that kind of guides you through life or just a quote that's meaningful to you. Well, I knew you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> Why, of course you did. <laughs> so, thank goodness, because you just have to spring that on people. I don't know how they answer it. but So, I did reflect on that, and it's kind of funny because I haven't been able to get this quote out of my head, even though there's millions I probably encounter on a regular basis. But when I was growing up, my dad used to read, um, read to me, and uh, we would read nursery rhymes and everything else. But one of the things he read... And uh, 
it didn't read, recited. It was a um, an Edwin Markham poem, and he would do hand motions with it. And at the time, I probably really had no understanding of the significance of the poem, but we all memorized it. All five of us kids memorized it, and, and my siblings, some of them, have passed it on to their kids, et cetera, et cetera. But it's basically, um, the poem is, He drew a circle that shut me out, Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout, But love and I had the will to win, He drew a cir- We drew a circle and took him in. And he would, when he would say, he drew a circle and we drew a circle and took him in, he would circle his arms around me and pull me into a hug. (laughs) And that was the end of the night. And uh, it's come to me, come since then to mean to me to kind of symbolize the idea of that there are people that will shut other people out. And the idea of, but love and I had the will to win we drew a circle that took him in. So it's the idea of kind of taking in the other, taking in the outsider. Hmm. And I love that idea. And I and I think a lot of times that Unitarian Universalist congregations become a sanctuary for people who are searching, people who are feeling other and not like they fit into some communities because maybe their thinking is a little different or outside of a rigid doctrinal box, etc. And... Hmm. Uh, and, you know, if you want to say our religion is love, that's one of the things, you know, we have a lot of people who lo- believe a lot of different things within our congregations. But one of the common themes is just really around loving. And I mean that in a, a general sense um, of just treating people with humanity. Mm-hmm. Nice. I like that. <laughs> All right. So the one question I like to ask everyone and it is, how is Unitarian Universalism as a religious denomination uniquely positioned to serve and impact society? Um, well, I made reference to the fact that we believe a lot of different things, <laughs> Unitarian Universalists do, and uh, we're described often as a, a pluralist religion in that we draw from many different religions. And I think that so much of the tension and political insanity that goes on right now has to do with the the tension that people have in creating a us and them mentality, a sense of, you know, whether it be we have the right religion or we have the right political beliefs, et cetera, and you're wrong. <laughs> um, and then that creates conflict instead of a kind of, you know, there's room for all of us and that, different people maybe believing similar things, but putting different names on it <laughs> kind of thing. And, and I think that Unitarian Universalism really recognizes, um, you know, it's in our purposes and principles, recognizing the inherent worth and dignity of all people. That includes people who don't believe the same things we do. And so Unitarian Universalists are able to kind of create a bridge and I think that that's what we need. You know, it's kind of like our political system being so partisan. You know, well, if we didn't all worry about whether we were Republicans, Democrats, Independents, et cetera, maybe we could actually agree on some specific ideas and values. And I think we're kind of that to religion, you know, that we focus on what we have that's similar as part of the human experience as opposed to what divides us and what makes us other. Deb? I really think that if there was ever a time when Unitarian Universalism was needed in the world, it's now because um, the world and all of us are hungry for respect and compassion um, and understanding and the opportunity to be heard. And I think our faith is uniquely poised to be able to provide opportunity for all those things. Um, Our faith has been a welcoming faith um, and this is surely a time where folks need to feel welcomed. Yeah, nicely put. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Deb and Amy, for being with us and sharing your insights on the CLL program. All right. So hopefully that gave you a clear picture about the 
Commission Lay Leader Program. And if you want more information, go to theohiomeadville.org slash program slash CLL and you can find out more. I also have the link in the show notes along with a introduction, uh, a video introduction that Renee Rohutsky has done. And that certainly will give you um, more to go on to make a decision on whether you would like to participate or not. And again, thank you for listening. I appreciate all our listeners. Uh, We are covering 11 countries now uh, on four continents. And that's just, it's really fantastic to have all of you listening. So please uh, download, subscribe, give us a review, uh, and tell me who you'd like to hear on the show. I'd really like to certainly bring the people that you want to hear about and know more about. So until next time, we'll see you on the UU Perspective Podcast. Thank you.